Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Michael Balsitas with Bella Bay Realty in Caledonia, Michigan. Last year, he closed 411 transactions with a total sales volume of $22.7 million. His average sales price was $55,000, of which 10% were buyers and 90% were sellers. He operates a team with eight members, one transaction coordinator, one listing coordinator, one property manager, two runners, one marketing specialist, one bookkeeper, and one team leader. Michael Balsitas and his wife own and operate Bella Bay Realty. He has been an agent for 17 years. He works the West Michigan market, including Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, and Muskegon. Michael started selling homes at 19 years old. He went to night school and sold homes during the day. Early on, he worked as a buyer agent for a broker who specialized in estate sales. The buyer investors he represented wanted more inventory to look at and convinced Michael to call banks looking for distressed properties. It worked. Michael has specialized in REO sales for 15 years. He was in the right place at the right time as the REO market exploded with the current recession. His business has grown as the economy has declined. Michael shares a career's worth of knowledge. He tells us how the industry has developed and changed. Michael lists conferences, classes, designations, and more. He describes how he set up his team and which software to use. Michael has even sold homes for hedge funds and bulk buyers. He tells us how to find hedge funds, how to help them buy, how to help them sell, and how profitable they are. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Michael. Thanks for having me. Michael, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. I got into real estate when I was 19 years old. I had graduated right out of high school, and uh, my dream, to be honest with you, was to find a good factory job. Uh, West Michigan is known for, well, was known for automotive and uh, office furniture manufacturing. I was going to try and do that for a living, but unfortunately, I I got into a car accident, and uh, basically, I I broke my legs, couldn't walk for a little bit, just wasn't able to stand for eight to ten hours at a time. So I was kind of forced to do something office-related, and I wasn't a... um, well, let's just put it this way. I mean, I wasn't one of those guys who could just sit still. So I was actually referred to uh, a sales job, and uh, I was actually selling 
a company's out of business now. I, I did a two-month stint at a company that worked as a subcontractor for OSHA. And basically what they would do is if a contractor got in trouble, they were forced to buy a, a, a how-to video, how to basically be safe at a ridiculous price. So I would have contractors yelling and screaming at me all day because I'd call them up and basically say, congratulations, not only have you been fined, but now you've got to buy this $10,000 video. So uh, <laughs> luckily that company went out of business. And then uh, I actually enjoyed sales. And, and I, like I said, at 19, my dad thought it would be a good idea for me to try real estate. So he was the one who actually encouraged me to, to try it. So got into it, took my class while I was going to college at the same time I'm doing this. Sold three houses my first month in the business and just never looked back, really. I've been doing it for a long time, going on my 17th year. Michael, when you got started, did you have a fast start or a slow start? I had a pretty quick start. I was very lucky. I was able to be hired by a broker that uh, did a lot of uh, estate sales. He didn't like to work with buyers. So what he would do is uh, he basically hired me as a, as a buyer's agent and trained me at that same time of basically how to become a listing broker. So he had an abundance of buyers to work with for a short period of time there. So I, I got out of the gates pretty quick. Fantastic. And you were working with buyers originally? Yeah, for the first uh, five to six months of uh, my real estate career, I was working with mostly buyers and then, it, well, all buyers, and then it subtly transitioned into listings. And then it was like a 50-50 mixture for about two years of my career. And then I just decided at that point to focus strictly on listings. Did you say that you were selling real estate the same time you were going to college? I was. What I would do is, is I would try to take all my classes at night, and I was basically selling real estate in the day. So, you know, get up in the morning, go to work, work till about 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, then I would go to class till about 9 o'clock at night. I did that for about three years and, and just decided that I was making, well, this is the sad thing, I decided that I would make more money selling real estate than I was going to be doing the career I was going to college for. My wife and I made a decision that we were going to take a year off in college, see how I did with real estate, and then if I wasn't doing it that that well, and I'd go back and finish my degree and, and go back into marketing. And we, you know, we were very blessed, and I was able to sell more. Every year has been more and more and more, it seems like. So I never went back, unfortunately. Michael, how long have you been in the business? 17 years. How many homes did you sell in your best year? Uh, we were at 455 in 2008. You had to have some pretty decent sales volume. Do you remember what your sales volume was? That year, I think we were at $33 million, right around there. Where is Caledonia, Michigan? It's a suburb of Grand Rapids, Michigan. I don't know if you're familiar with Michigan, but we're directly two hours west of Detroit. How big is that city? We're right about 750000 when you add all the suburbs. Yeah, it might be a little bit smaller, obviously. We've lost a lot of, a lot of people with manufacturing jobs, so... Have you seen a large shrinkage in the population there in the last 10 years or so? Yeah, quite a bit, actually. At one point, I think we were just at a million or right under a million when you took that, that whole market share, but uh, it's, it's down quite a bit since 
I would say 2004. Wow, so you've potentially lost 25% of your population. Yeah, I don't know if it was that much, but it's, it seems like it was a lot, to be honest with you. I mean, we're not as bad as Detroit, but by any means, we've lost quite a few, quite a few households to uh, other states for, well, job opportunities, of course. I just assume that's affected the real estate prices and the values of homes. At one point in time, our average sales price for Grand Rapids was 167000 Right now, I think we're at 109. So, I mean, that's, that's a substantial drop since 2004, 2005. We've seen some markets, some areas in our market actually decrease by about 70%. Well, it's always tough when you when you you know five years ago you sold a house for a hundred thousand and then you're selling it reselling it for twenty five thousand later. In your market, are you seeing many retail sales or the majority of the sales REO and short sale? Right now, I think our last statistic, our MLS, said it was sixty one percent REO and short sale. Do you think that the prices have stabilized? Are they continuing to fall? Are they starting to go up? No, we're actually starting to see some appreciation in some markets. I have a large service area that I cover. I cover Grand Rapids primarily, but then there's two smaller cities, one to the north, which is Muskegon, and one to the south, which is Kalamazoo. Grand Rapids is starting to see appreciation. Those other two are still declining, but what normally happens is, is once once Grand Rapids starts to go up in value, then those other two will start to increase as well. So it's uh, it's promising at this point. Do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? I specialize in REO properties. I've been doing that for 15 years now. So you've been in the REO focus side for almost your entire career. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Yep. I was doing REO before anybody knew what REO was, at least in my area. That's definitely different than a lot of people we talk to. So tell us, why did you go into REO so early 15 years ago? It was a combination of things. When I first got into the business, like I said earlier, I worked for a small broker who specialized in estate sales. And with estates, there comes well a great deal of uh, investors who want to buy properties. And what I would do is I started selling all these investors' properties. Well, we started to run out. They, and um, a guy said, you know, hey, why don't you call a couple banks, see what, what they have on the market. And I did that. And... Didn't think much of it, but I was also taking a Mike Ferry class at the same time, and or I was actually getting coaching from Mike Ferry's organization, and they were basically saying, you know, do something that no one else is doing. Do the things that nobody wants to do, and you'll be successful. Well, nobody wanted to work with investors or, or REO properties, so that's why I got into it. I went and uh, called a few banks, got a couple listings, and then realized, well, if I call one bank and I get two listings, if I call two banks, maybe I get four listings. And it just kind of uh, snowballed from that point. Yeah, I was, uh, I had started this doing the REO side of things well before there were uh, any sort of technologies or sign up lists or, you know, websites to go register your services at. So I did it the old fashioned way, uh, a lot of phone prospecting. Um, and I just, I got to a point where I realized that hey, why go for the one client who will sell one house every five years when you can go to one client who's going to sell five houses every year? I decided that volume was better than than sitting on my, my, my rear end hoping for the phone to ring. So that's what I decided to go after. And so did that develop quickly or was it just a slow, gradual rise 
you immediately start selling 400 homes a year, or did it just slowly trickle up? It, it slowly trickled. Like the first year was 45, and then the second year was was 75, and then by that point, I was when I got to about 70, I realized I needed a lot of staff, or I needed staff, and once I got staff, then I just I was able to do more and more properties. After we went 75, our second year into the business, we were 150 plus, and then it went from there to 200, 300, 400, and so we've we've been pretty much averaged 300 sales pretty much each year for the last five years, except for last year we had a down down year, 285. Why do you think it went down? Priorities. I I kind of shifted my priorities. I was trying to do, I was trying to dabble into short sales. In our market, short sales are are huge right now. They actually, the short sales actually outnumber the REO properties in my market. And my thought process was, is if, if the banks are going to do all, are going to sell all these houses short sales, well, my theory was, okay, then that means they're not going to go to REO. Therefore, my market's going to shrink. So I tried to focus on short sales and tap into that market. Started out okay with it. And I was successful, I guess you could say, but it still it was very time consuming and it just I lost my focus and once I realized that I I went right back into the REO market and just focused on that and now we're back up to normal numbers. That shows the power of focus. Well, I think that there's something to be said for for getting out to you know, getting out and seeing the people, meeting the people, making some relationships. However, I the thing I was really irritated with the most is the lack of uh, systems that the banks had in place to actually approve the short sale. You know, nothing like spending three months, four months dealing with a client only to find out you can't help them. And then you don't get paid after that fourth month. You get a little bit irritated. I assume over the years, you've been doing this in quite a while, 15 years, I assume that you've continued to add banks, asset managers, and possibly government entities to the mix how many banks and asset managers are you working with? At our height, which was 2008, we were, I, had a, I had a theory. I wanted 52 banks because there were 52 weeks in the year. So my thought process was is I would be getting at least two listings a week minimum. I found that 52 was really kind of unmanageable. And so what we did is we actually took our, our bottom 25% and um, we we actually fired the bank, basically. Decided not to work with them. And then we were able to actually focus a little bit more. Unfortunately, things went south, and then I had to get back at it and go for different banks because a lot of the banks that we had cut got new contracts. You had to go back and win their, win their love again. It's just one of those things. And I realized, you know what? We, just, we weren't systematized good enough, in my mind, to handle 52 banks. However, you know, now we're easily handling 50 plus banks. It just took more tweaking of my systems. So you currently have over 50 banks you're working with? Yes. Well, when I say banks, that's, uh, that's a combination of the, the GSEs, asset management companies, local credit unions, uh, local commercial banks, and hedge funds. Let's try to break some of that out of who you're working with. So you've got some smaller private banks, and you mentioned credit unions? Correct. And these are all local banks that you're working with? The GSEs, obviously, is where we get a majority of our business right now. 
but they um, we have a large credit union here. We have several credit unions and local banks who we're doing a lot of retail lending and portfolioing those loans. So they had foreclosures just like the the GSEs. They needed to be serviced. So I thought, why not approach them and and see if we can be of help? And you know, luckily we were. And that's kind of how you got started as well, isn't it? Didn't you start off calling the local banks? Yes, yes. It's a lot more difficult now than it was. I mean, I I, I don't want people to get the the notion of, you know, hey, I just pick up a phone and I get listings. A lot of it now is networking. You have to do more networking to find the person who knows the person who can make the decision. So years ago, the banks didn't know what to do when they had a foreclosure. Well, now now they do. And now you have to find the decision makers of those departments. And And I'm just one of, you know, 1,500 agents in my association here that are probably calling these banks trying to get the business. It does help to get in contact with the right people. And how are you doing that? How are you networking to make sure you're getting in touch with the right people? Primarily, I mean, you can make a phone call and ask for any bank's REO department. You know, you're you're probably not going to be able to ask a local teller. They probably won't know. But you can always go to a branch or actually, in our area, you can go right to their main headquarters and say, I'd like to speak to someone who sells your foreclosure properties. Sometimes they'll come talk to you, sometimes they won't. At that point, the idea is to find somebody who knows who's the decision maker and try to establish a relationship with that that person's coworker or friend or find somebody else in the bank that you can make a, a contact with and then they make the contact for you. I've gotten several referrals from banks where people... Uh, we've had relationships with the asset manager, we'll say, and then they, they leave that company and they go to a different one and they bring me along with them. If an asset manager goes from one bank to three banks in a, in a five-year period, you could be working with several different banks within that same five five-year period. As long as you're doing a good job for bank A, they're probably not going to fire you when they have another property. It's all about relationships. And how are you building these relationships? Are are you doing it mainly by phone conversation? Are you doing it by email? Are you going out there personally and meeting them? It is a combination of all three. I'll take probably 10 business trips this year. I'm not, not afraid to fly all across the country, do lunches, do dinners, you know, put on a presentation for the, for the client to let them know what's happening in our market, kind of give them a summary of what's going on in general with the state. You know, so a lot of it's daily emails, followed by a phone call or whatever. And then, like I said, we'll do trips uh, throughout the year trying to, like we'll go to Texas for an example, and we'll try to hit every client, that every asset manager or every asset management company or GSE or whatever and while we're in Texas. So could spend a week there doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner with people. You've mentioned GSE a few times. What is a GSE? Most people know them as Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and HUD. Well, HUD's not a GSE, but Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And are you working with all three of them, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and HUD? Yes. I would say Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, well, Freddie Mac was 2007, Fannie Mae was 2008, and then um, HUD was just last year. And currently, if you were to break out, I've heard that called the government trifecta. 
if you were to break out the government trifecta from the rest of your business, what percentage is it? Honestly, in 2007, they weren't a lot of the business because what they were doing in 2007 is they were outsourcing all of their properties to asset management firms. As the surplus and the volume came in, they decided that they'd keep it in-house versus outsourcing it. So I'd say right now the, the GSEs make up about 50% of my business, or the, I would call them the trifecta. They, they make up 50% of the business, and the, um, the remaining portion of my business would be, like I said, the asset management firms, hedge funds, and um, local, local banks. Of the three, which one is currently giving you the most business, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or HUD? Freddie Mac is my biggest client right now, but they'll be superseded by HUD next year. HUD's growing. Yeah. Luckily, you know, when you're when you're in a market like us where your average sales price at, at one point was hundred and thirty thousand, you get a lot of first time home buyers. And the first time home buyers typically use FHA financing. So when an FHA home gets foreclosed on, it goes back to HUD. For most of the time HUD takes that property. And I think this year we sold well, I looked at it here uh, just the other day. We sold 152 houses for HUD so far this year. And you just picked up that contract? Yes. I've heard before that that's a very desirable contract to be working with HUD right now since they changed their procedures. It sounds like that's been true for you as well. Why didn't you work with HUD for the last 15 years? I was approached by them at one point, and the, the issue they had is, well, just, well, they didn't compensate well. Their theory, and at least in, this is what the theory was in West Michigan, we're going to give you $150 for every listing. That's it. And what you're going to do is put a sign in the yard and give us MLS exposure. And my theory was, well, no, $150 bucks does not doesn't work for me. But their theory, you put your sign in the yard, you get a ton of buyers. And at that point, my mentality wasn't, because um, I, didn't, I didn't have our brokerage at that time, my mentality was I don't work with buyers, I work with sellers. So I had said no. Well, then, then HUD got smart and realized their houses weren't selling because they weren't paying very well. And then they changed their pay structure. And when their pay structure changed, well, then at that point, I was willing to bid on the contract. Do you know how many other agents were bidding on that same contract? In my area... I can't speak for for the entire country, but in my area, there was I know there's eight HUD brokers right now. So there's eight of us who sell properties right now for HUD in my area. Do you know how many applicants they had for your, one of your positions? Oh, I couldn't tell you for sure. They never disclosed that, but it was it was substantial. I know pretty much every brokerage in in my account applied for it. And so my question is, how did you get it? What made you stand apart? You know, I, I can't say for sure. I do know that I've got a great group of networking associates. Actually, there's a group of us REO brokers from Michigan that travel together. So when we go on client visits, it's not just myself. Most of the time, there's other people from, could be, you know, different parts of the state. A group of us for four days basically worked on proposals and came up with different ideas and thoughts and, and ways to promote ourselves to HUD. And, you know, luckily, all but one of us were awarded the contract. So you've put together a mastermind group there. Yes, exactly. 
how did that come about? How did you find these other people? Was it already a group up and running that you joined, or did, were you part of the initial group? What it was is, is when we first got into a lot of the foreclosures, banks didn't have mileage restrictions. They didn't uh, have really know how to sell their property. So they'd say, hey, we have a listing in Grand Rapids. Can you handle one in Lansing, which is in the center, basically in the middle of the state? Well, no, I, I didn't want to... I couldn't handle that because I didn't have MLS access there and I didn't know the market. So what I would do as a courtesy, I would try to find an agent who specialized in foreclosure sales and then I would help outsource that property for the bank. Well, then just over time, I had built relationships with these people and then you know, we're in different organizations together, um, different, different things. So that's just kind of over time how it evolved. You just kept bumping into each other. Yeah, and, and then we realized, okay, well, why not? Why not meet and see what we can do? And then, you know, several several meetings later, we're all really close friends now. So, Is it a formal meeting? Do you meet every so often, like every month or every quarter? We talk every week. That's kind of a must. But we'll see each other probably once a quarter. How many people are in this mastermind? I think there's seven of us, seven total. And you're all in different parts of the state or all in the same city? Nope all different parts of the state. It makes it easier. There's less competition that way. I mean, you don't want to be discussing how to do business in a way that benefits your competition. You can delete that from the interview if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's business, right? But no, I mean, it's true. I mean, I, I don't sell houses in Detroit, so the Detroit brokers aren't intimidated by me. So when, you know, and, and we share quite often as well. If I get a new client, my job, if... What I'll do is, is I'll see if that new client is um, working with uh, some of my friends. And if they're not working with any of them, then it's my job to try to get all my friends in that same blank. So that's how, you know, that's kind of, as I was saying earlier in the interview, find somebody who knows somebody. And for an example, that's how I had gotten uh, into Fannie Mae was I had applied several times over the years and Never got any sort of response, but a few, a couple of my my business associates got into that, and then they word of mouth spread, and, and that's how I was able to get into those companies. So that was part of your networking as well. Exactly. Yeah. So it's persistence. You know, just because they tell you no today doesn't mean they're going to tell you no next year. How often do you try to generate new business relationships? With banks, are you continuously prospecting for these relationships? I had a thing years ago where I was going to prospect every day, and that that worked for a short period of time. Well, then you, it's kind of a limited market, so you burn yourself out of uh, contacts. So what I try and do now is I'll look on a weekly basis. Uh, so I'll take uh, a few hours a week, and what I'll do is it'll be everything from searching different groups in LinkedIn different, there's all kinds of different other uh, professional organizations that have forums, um, that have um, meetings, stuff like that. So I, I'm constantly, all, once, at least once a week, I'm spending three hours at a minimum with trying to find a new client. Your objective is to find a contact, a person that you can communicate with. Is that what you're doing the majority of the time? Yes. So it goes back to kind of follow-up, old-fashioned follow-up, really. You know, sometimes you 
you'll run across the company and they say, okay, just put your application in on this website. Okay, so you put your application in on the website and you never hear anything back. Well, most agents just give up. They don't follow up. They don't try to find out who makes the decision if you're going to get hired. So what we try to do, or I say we, I say I try to do is actually follow up with the companies that I'm applying for. Did you get my application? Can I send you something? Can I, you know, like my, my resume, not resume, but we have a little marketing package. So stuff like that. It's constant follow-up. And if we don't get somebody today, then we'll try them again next week. How often do you try to get in touch with these people? You said, is it weekly or is it monthly? How often are you putting it out? Weekly. And is it usually a phone call? Is it an email? Is it a letter? It is a combination of basically phone calls and emails. I find that letters really don't reach their, their intended target. A lot of these companies just, I don't know, they, I, don't know if, I just don't think they have mail rooms or something, but you'll mail something out, and it just seems like the right person never gets it. So I stopped that a few years back. What do you say when you try to make contact with these people? What specifically do you write in your email or in your phone call? What do you say? Well, normally just you have to get a feel for what you're doing. Some of the larger clients, you're, you're going to have very limited time frame. Basically, you have to get your point across in less than two paragraphs. It has to be done in a way that is it's, um, not, non-aggressive. But yet, you just want to you want to get out there in front of them. So basically, it could be everything from. I'll just give you a, a kind of a quick example. Hey Jim, I just wanted to, just want to take a second and introduce myself. I'm Mike Balcidas, Bay Realty. Blah blah blah. I specialize in this market. I kind of tell them what I do, and it says you were referred to me by my friend Jason out of the Detroit area. He said that you might be needing some extra help on this side of the state. If you would like, I can send you my information, more information on my company. Just let me know. So that's kind of the first, the first thing that we do. And then what I'll do at that point is I'll contact my friend who referred me to this client, and I'll say, hey, I just put in a follow-up email. Could you follow up with that person on my behalf again? But don't do it right away. So what will happen is, is a week later, that friend Jason will send that bank manager or that asset manager an email, hey, I heard that my friend Mike, once again, so my name's put in front of him again, out of the Grand Rapids area, sent you a quick email seeing if he could help. And then he'll try to strike up a conversation and get a feel that way. What will happen after that conversation is that my friend will call me back, tell me how the conversation went, give me an idea of whether or not we have a chance to get in with this new client or not. At that point, another email or a phone call will be placed. That's one of the ways that we do it. You're basically tag-teaming them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're doing it off a referral. Correct. Now, what will happen, like for an example, if there's multiple friends working with a SIS organization, I will actually request multiple friends to contact them on my behalf as well. And then I'll do the same thing for them. So... Say I had friend one contact him this week, friend two might contact him four weeks from now, friend three might contact him six weeks from now. And you all just set up a schedule? Pretty much. Well, I, I, it's, it's kind of an, it's an informal schedule. But like I said, it all goes back to follow-up. So quite honestly, my friends, they all do more business than me or as much as me. And you know, they're, they're not thinking about Mike Balsitas every day. 
So I have to follow up with them and ask favors and vice versa. And I will definitely, you know, I always reciprocate the favor. Of the 50 banks you're working with, how many did you open the door with this method? All of them. Well, I take that back. Freddie Mac, I was referred by uh, a couple of attorneys. Freddie Mac actually was looking for a, what they considered at that point a large volume broker, which I was. So they had asked their attorney firms for some suggestions. And at that point, I was contacted based off of those referrals, and then I had to go through the whole interview process. So it wasn't just a couple of phone calls. They actually sought me out, and then it was an in-depth several, several meetings before they actually would work with me. You said attorneys. Are these real estate closing attorneys? Foreclosure attorneys. Title companies in Michigan close our deals. But when the bank actually, well, how it works here, there are several large attorney firms who actually process the foreclosure for the bank. And then they actually, they have subsidiary title companies who do the, the title work. So even when you do a volume like, say, a Freddie Mac would do, um, they'll get discounts either in the attorney firm uh, or attorney rate, or maybe the uh, foreclosure or title work rate. And these attorneys knew you because you've been in the industry and working the REO side for 15 years. They've been bumping into you. Correct. Yep. I've always had this this theory. We've got people who constantly want to get our business, and they offer us stuff, whether it's uh, you know a free lunch or a a sporting event. My theory is is we're not going to we don't do business that way. However come in, talk to us. If we can come to a mutual understanding, we'll work together. And I found, I got that, that advice years ago from a couple attorneys, and that seems to always work because when you start to go out to lunches with people, they expect things in return. But if they come to your office or you go to their office, you know it's all business. You're there for one purpose, and that's to, you know, to make a connection, to develop a relationship, and then work together in the future. And, and we make a point, there are several attorney firms in our area who do a lot of foreclosures, we make a point to be with their point people. So you know, it could be everything from just meeting with their person just to see if there's any new changes that they see in the market. Do they see any changes occurring? Have they heard any rumors? And then going from that point, um, a lot of things uh, could be from just well, actually, just general questions on the foreclosure process. So we don't always have the answer, so it's always nice to use them as a resource. What do you ask of the asset manager when you're trying to set up the relationship? Are you just asking to take on an assignment, or do you try to start with a smaller step, such as doing a BPO or a review BPO? The agents who are listening to this have to realize there's two different BPOs. Okay, There are companies that hire for secondary BPOs, okay, and those are done to verify my value on my BPO. If you're doing the secondary BPO, you probably are never going to get a listing because those companies, that's not their specialty. Their specialty is to get the value. So when we get into it, we, so we don't do a lot of that. We, years ago, we did a lot of exterior BPOs, and we realized, okay, I just did 100 BPOs for this company. They didn't give me a single listing. Well, that's because they don't have listing inventory. So if a BPO company doesn't have an REO department, those people need to realize, or the agents listening to this call need to realize, the chances of them getting a listing is, is slim to none. So you really want to focus on the companies who can make decisions who actually have the inventory. Now when I get into a company where they have the actual inventory, 
if I'm not their main agent, what I will do is I will ask just to start to prove myself to, to a bank. Typically what I'll say is, give me your most difficult property to sell. Give me your most aged property to sell. Let me try to prove myself to you that way. If the bank has an established relationship with a, with a realtor, they're going to use that realtor because that realtor gives them proven results time and time again. What happens is, is a lot of times they don't want to give you business because they like that other relationship that they have. So if you ask for the most difficult one or the most aged one, you're actually helping them because what it is, it's a headache to them. They want you to take their headache away. So if they can give you their headache and you're actually successful at selling it, it sticks out more in their mind. So that's, that's where we approach it. We're not asking to be their number one agent. We're just asking to assist the other agents in their network. If they don't have other agents in their networks, what we want to do is be their number one agent. And we don't want them to have to go anywhere else but to us. So that's how we approach it. It's, a step, it's kind of a step-by-step -step thing. But you want to do something. If, if an asset manager or a bank gave you an easy selling property, they're not going to remember you. If you ask for the hard property or the most difficult or ugliest, hideous property they have, well, they remember that property. So you have a common ground to discuss a second deal with them because now you have something to talk to them about. So that's how I approach it. Here, give you an example. I had a client who said, Mike, all right, we have this property. The former owner took a garden hose, turned the hose on, put it into his basement, clogged the drains I got in this house, and we seriously, we had eight feet of water in the basement. Okay, well, there literally, the washing machine was floating. The asset manager was laughing about it, so we had a common ground. So the next time I talked to him, the approach was, hey, do you have any more floating washing machines I can sell for you? They laughed, we had a bond. So. Those are the things to look for. Try to help them. I mean, they, they ultimately want help. They have a job to do. They have to sell their inventory, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if it's simple and it goes smooth and efficiently, some will remember you. But if you're not their main person, they're not going to remember you as well as their, as their key person. So help them sell their hard stuff. They remember you. You have an easier chance to establish that relationship, build that bond. They give you more properties in the future. And before you know it, you're their number one agent. After you sell the floating washing machine house, do you continue to contact the asset manager and ask for additional business, or do you wait until they give you additional business? Well, what you basically have to do, you know, keep in mind, if now if I were in the Detroit market, which is the largest city in Michigan, they have properties on a daily basis. In West Michigan, they don't have properties on a daily basis, so you have to be patient. Be thankful that you got the one property. If you don't see anything in two months, you might want to actually make a phone call. What we try to do is send the asset managers an email once a month just letting them know that, hey, just want you to know we're still around. The asset manager has a very stressful, very jam-packed day. They don't really have time to talk. It's very difficult for them to to, to manage hundreds of properties at one time. So you want to be really as non-evasive as possible. Let them know, hey, I'm still in Grand Rapids. If you need any help, please don't forget about me. And that's it. And you go to the next one and you say the same thing. You know, so we do that on a regular basis. 
some asset managers or, or bank managers who you have established relationships with, you will not have to do that. It's just the, the, the companies that you don't have an established relationship with that you'll want to do that. But you want to do it to a point where it is, you don't seem like you're desperate or you're bugging them. But you're persistent. Yes. You know, this is a question I don't normally ask, but you've been in the business a long time. You might know. You brought up a good point. These these asset managers, they're getting overworked. Let's look at it from their perspective for just a second. In your experience, who are the asset managers? How are they getting compensated? What's in it for them to make this thing work? Why would they want to work with one agent over the other? I know I, I loaded up the questions there, but I'm trying to get a picture of who this asset manager is on the other side. You know, each each individual client or company has their own take on who they want to hire. Some companies use exclusively former realtors. They have a knowledge of how the real estate transaction works. Other companies want people straight out of college who don't know anything about the process because they just they don't want them to have a tainted opinion on how to do the job. You really just have to play it by ear. Some companies, I find, honestly, I find the most frustrating companies are the ones who don't train their people how to think outside of the box. So if you have an issue, they don't have the answer for you. Most of the people my understanding is is how they're compensated, and I'm not, I'm not an asset manager, so I don't know for a fact, but I've been told by several asset managers they get a small salary, and then they're compensated by bonuses, and that that bonus is based off a percentage of closed assets out of their portfolio monthly. So they're getting commission? Yeah, for the most part, yep. And those are the best ones. The ones that actually get the commissions or the bonuses are the best ones to work with because they have the most motivation to sell the property. They're in the same boat as you are. Oh, exactly, yep. Again, just throwing ideas around. Don't give me anybody's name in particular, but do you have any idea how much income do they make? Are they making a, a living wage? Are they making good income? It, it depends. I know a couple asset managers who make about $150,000 a year, and then I know other ones who make about thirty. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Okay, but they can make some really good dough then. They, they can, yeah. But those are the very, see, a, a few years back, a lot of the very experienced asset managers were pretty much all let go from a lot of these major companies because, well, they needed to cut overhead. And, you know, when, you, when you're, say, dealing with, say, an asset manager deals with 100 properties at a time and their bonus is based off 100 properties, and then five years later, now they're dealing with 300, but their bonus is still based off on the original percentage. Those asset managers making a lot of money. That was hard to justify for a lot of companies, so they let a lot of their top experienced agents go. Asset managers have seen a huge pay cut over the past few years. Well, thank you for giving us that perspective from the asset manager's side. You mentioned the different organizations that you're working with to get these assets. You mentioned hedge funds. How are you working with hedge funds? Well, once again, it goes back to you have to be a student of your of your job. We look at major purchase, like a bulk a bulk buyer 
will say, I don't know if you're familiar with the term of bulk buying, but basically a, a company will go to, say, Fannie Mae, for an example, and say, okay, Fannie, we want to buy 1,000 properties from you, but we want a discount. So Fannie Mae will sell them 1,000 properties. That gets it off their books, and then it, it puts the stress and the, the headache of selling the property on the other, the bulk buyer or hedge fund. So what we've discovered over the years is there are more and more of these buyers. Well, they have a need just like the bank. So we have to know when a property actually sold to a, a hedge fund or a bulk buyer. So what you try to do is figure out who they are, and then you try to contact them. It's the same exact thing as if you're trying to deal with the bank. And you'll be able to, in, in this business, if you actually attend enough conferences and have enough connections and networks out there, you actually know who are actually buying properties and, and who are trying to buy them. So and it's, it's just good to get in front of them and offer your services before somebody else does. When these hedge funds buy these bulk properties, are they buying them typically in the same area or the same part of the country, or are they spread out all over the place? It just depends on on what the packages they're trying to buy. I've been lucky enough, I helped a couple people in the past coordinate and actually complete a sale like a bulk package, but they were very specific where they wanted to be price range. So all the properties came in at a certain price range. Another one basically said, I don't care where they're at, we want the property for this percentage of the loan balance and or the BPO value or however they wanted to structure it. So there are there are programs out there for large investors to go through. Uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, for an example, you can go right online and apply to be a, a bulk buyer. But you have to have capital to do that. They don't just let everybody do it. You actually have to prove your net worth, prove that you can do what you're going to do, because they don't want to sell a property and leave the market worse shape than what they bought it for. That buyer has to actually have a plan and an intention of uh, really trying to put a homeowner back in the property versus an investor, or a non-owner occupant, I should say. Have you been able to represent one of these bulk buyers in the purchase side? I represented two of them at one, time, at one point. Now, they weren't buying thousands of properties in a package, but uh, you know, one that bought 44 properties at one time, and we had another one that bought 32 properties. So they were small, they were small packages, but still got paid, so I was happy. When this buyer is buying 30 or 40 properties, what kind of discount were they receiving? You know, that was a few years back when that happened, so that all changes. I, I couldn't tell you exactly what it was. One of them was bought from a local commercial bank, and they actually they bought it off in the actual BPO value. So what happens is the property goes to foreclosure. The bank does an actual uh, a BPO to establish what the market will bear or what that property will bear on the open market. And then what the bulk buyer did for that one, this is okay, will buy it for 80% of your BPO value. So that's how they based the one package. And then the other package was strictly based off in price. It was approach of, okay, look, I want to buy properties, but I only want to spend this much money. And then they were given properties that way. So I, I wasn't privy to how much of a discount they got on that sale. Did you get a commission on the overall package, or did you just get a fee for helping them? How did you get paid or compensated for that? I got a percentage. Once again, it goes back to who you know or how you, you, how you get your new business. I got paid a percentage, but then I had to split my percentage with 
basically a middleman who got me in contact with the proper people. So there it was another brokerage firm that I partnered with on it, basically. Sounds like you're not continuing to do that. So you made a little bit of money, but it wasn't worth the time? No, no, not at all. Don't get me wrong. It was nice to get one big check, but I learned that I'd rather take a lot of little checks over time than one big one. And that was on the purchase side. Did you turn around and then help those individuals sell those properties? Yeah, I resold all of them as well. Okay, so that was the benefit to you as well? Yeah. So you made some money going in with the purchase, and then you made more money coming out the back end with each individual sale? Correct. So basically, you know, for an example, the gentleman that I helped buy 44 properties that it basically turned into 88 different sales. Yeah, that's exciting. It is if they work. Yeah, I find that a lot of these people, when the market really changed and got really bad, you know, they thought these, you know, a lot of these bulk buyers figured that the banks were just giving away properties for like, you know, 40 cents on the dollar, and that was the furthest thing from the truth. The buyers of those packages don't realize, okay, all right, we'll say for an example, commercial bank gives you 50 properties. Well, guess what? 40 of them are going to be their, their worst properties that you're going to lose money on, but you'll make enough money off in 10 to cover your loss of the, you know, of the 40 you just lost money on. I'm very surprised they're not very profitable. Any other ways that you've discovered to generate new business and new relationships with asset managers? It sounds like your tag team was the most profitable one or the most successful one. The tag team one is, but you still have to... You have to know what you're doing. There's so many times I'll have realtors, and I, I'm a firm believer in sharing and teaching. I was very blessed to have two, my first two brokers were, were so hands-on and so helpful. They helped me establish how I wanted to do business. So many times agents will call me and say, I want to get into the REO business. Okay, what do you know about it? Well, I know you get a lot of listings. Okay, that's, not, <laughs> that's the furthest thing from it. A lot of the agents just are really uneducated. They think that they just fill out an application and then they, you know, then they get to sit back and do nothing. They don't realize how many people you have to staff, how many hours you have to work, how much money you have to upfront. So I try to educate them on, on all of the different aspects that, that it takes to actually become successful in this business. And, and ways to do that, you actually have to travel. There's big REO conferences every year. Visit those conferences. Pay the money you actually have an opportunity to meet several people at these banks. You have a chance to network with other professionals throughout the country who are doing what you want to do. Pick their brain, and then and you'll have a better understanding. So when you actually talk to an asset manager, you know, you can walk the walk and, and, and talk the talk versus, you know, begging for the business, I guess you could say. So you really have to invest into this. This isn't just a a quick, I'm going to make a lot of money. I find that the people who stumble into this business burn out after a couple of years or a year. They didn't know how to manage it properly. So you really have to be a student of your of your profession. You know, I wouldn't do this for 15 years if one, I didn't have a passion for it. But two, if if I stopped learning and I wasn't growing on a mental mentally. I wouldn't be doing this. And there's the one thing I find more exciting about the REO business than regular residential real estate is there's always something new every day versus residential where there's really not. There's a lot of change in 
You have to be flexible in your environment. You do. You have to be on top of what's going on in your your environment. For an example, I had an agent come to me from our brokerage the other day, and he was kind of goofing off. He's like, so is the market good or bad? And I says, well, it depends on whose perspective you're looking at. CNN says it's bad. Well, I, you, know, you go to Bloomberg and it's good. Well, the next day Bloomberg says it's bad and CNN says it's good the next day. So you really have to know the numbers. You actually have to study it. You have to read. You have to research. You have to know what's going on in your profession. A portion of my week is actually just reviewing what's going on. You know, Every day you can turn on the news basically and see that Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac has an issue. Okay. Does their issue affect me? Primarily, it doesn't. However, I would like to know what's going to affect me before it affects me. So that's why you have to you have to research the stuff. You have to you know talk to people on a daily basis and, and just be a student of of your profession. What resources do you use to get that news? It could be everything from Bloomberg. I'm just throwing that name out there. Wall Street Journal. DS News is another good one. DS News I find to be probably the most accurate. DS News is, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's basically in, it's a publication specifically for the REO business. And then a lot of the, the things that we do, if you're, say, a part, of the, a part of an organization called the NRBA, which is probably the more prominent known, or probably it is the most recognizable REO association out there, Every day they've got news and notes and forums to go through. U.S. REO Partners is another big one for a lot of the uh, high-volume brokerages. They have a lot of information. REObroker.com is another one. So there are different organizations that, that you can grasp that information from. But then as for other news sources, just everything from, like I said, Fox News, Wall Street Journal, anything, anything to involve that involves business. I'm not worried about the the politics as much as I am. How how much money are they borrowing? Who bought what company? Those those are types of things that we look for in those publications. What would be some of the conferences you'd recommend that people should go to to learn more about REO? There's two major ones right now for the beginner REO agent. It's called the Five Star. Five-star conference is the largest by far, but then that encompasses people who have one listing to you know, people who have 500 listings. Then there's the REO Expo, which is the one I personally prefer. That gives you a little bit more meat and potatoes. You get a few more client visits, um, and that's a little bit more for the seasoned veteran. And then there's organizational uh, conferences, which would be like, for example, the NRBA has a big conference in May every year. And and that's probably the most successful one out of all of them, I would say, because you actually are dealing with 100% REO professionals who this is all they do, and, and they really have their pulse on, on the market. There are a few other conferences out there, but for the most part, if, if a client has a conference, which a lot of them do, which is just basically a training conference. Those are mandatory, basically. If they if they offer it and they say it's not mandatory, you still want to go because you can get your face out in front of that person. And if an asset manager can remember what you look like and who you are, the chances of you getting that property are just that much better. 
How else could someone educate themselves on the REO business? Are there books they can read, classes they can take? What would you recommend if somebody said, I really want to learn a lot about REO? <laughs> there are, I laugh because there are numerous books on it, but a lot of times those books are written you know, five years ago and the market changes so drastically. There, um, what you learned last month, you don't use this month. So uh, a lot of our business and our profession is hands-on, but you could Google um, books on, on REO or books on short sales, just stuff like that. They're out there. I would honestly say join an organization that specializes in REO. There's another company or another organization out there called Open Door Institute, and they do a great job with educating their members on what's going on in the market, how to be educated. Uh, there are a lot on education. Those are really the, the ones that I would recommend. When you first started 15 years ago, did you go to these conferences or, or did you discover them later? 15 years ago, they didn't, they didn't exist. A lot of these conferences have just really established themselves over the past, I'd say, five, six years. I think the NRBA is the longest running one, and I think that's like 10 years. I think they, they kind of had their, their finger on the, the pulse before anybody else did. I didn't start traveling until about 2000. So, I mean, like, of course, I'm on my, my 11th year for that, but really I wasn't traveling heavily until 2005 maybe. Every once in a while a client would have a mandatory educational event and you'd, you know, you'd go to Utah or California or wherever and learn how, to, you know, how, they, want you to, how they expect you to handle business. So. Do you have a certain type of software that you use to help track all the events that are occurring in the REO business? Yeah, there's, um, there's several different platforms to use. I use one that's called REO Office Manager. I use that two reasons. One, I find it to be the most efficient. Uh, it's, it's very, it's very basic. But then again, I don't need bells and whistles to 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 do what I need to do. I just want it basic. So that's why I use that program. That's actually developed by one of my friends out of Bay City, Michigan, who's actually an REO broker and is in my network group or my mastermind group. There's another program called REO Maestro that's out there. That one's a little bit too techy for me personally, but that, that serves as a, a great platform. And then the, the NRBA has a version called Rio. That as well, I mean, they're just great task management systems. And, and if you sell REO properties for a living, it's all task-driven. So you really have to be on top of that. And then, you know, for a, a, an email platform, uh, right now, while well, I have been using uh, Microsoft Outlook for years, we're actually in the process now of switching everything over to Gmail, just strictly because we can we can do more with that when with the smartphone technology and stuff. But you know, really, you can manage your own REO properties. There's several platforms that the clientele want you to use, from the Equator system, ResNet, Dispo Solutions. Those are basically task management systems that the clients use for their asset managers and they expect you to use because it's just, a, it's just a, it's a platform where you can upload photos and documents and just keep track of your transaction. 
if you're doing high volume, you don't need to have your own platform or your own system. You can work off of those that are provided for you. However, once you get to, you know, and I really, I truly believe once you get up to about 70 individual properties at that point, you really need to be having your own, your own systems in place. So that's at that point where you need to go out and invest some money. Agents who are not in REO have heard that one of the downsides to the REO business is that oftentimes the agents have to front money for the bank for different reasons. Have you experienced that? Yeah, with REO, a lot of the major companies out there, they expect you to pay for lawn care. They expect you to make sure the utilities are on uh, at all times. So there is, in fact, a, a very large amount of capital that you basically have to front for the client. And then you have to submit an invoice and, and you get paid back, you know, hopefully within you know, 30 to 90 days. Me personally, any large broker who's doing, I would say, 200 or more properties a year, you're going to have probably any given time $100,000 or more out. My accounts receivable hasn't been under 100000 in years. And that's always rolling. It's a rotating debt line because you're lending it out on new properties but getting it back on projects you've already worked on. You do. A lot of the issues that people face, especially when it comes to, to that outlay of, of funds, you're expected to submit your invoices within a certain time frame. You really need a bookkeeper to do your work for you or an accountant because, well, for an example, we had a bill we got from a vendor today that was 30 days past the closing. Why he didn't get it to us beforehand? Well, he just said he forgot to get it to us. Well, my staff didn't follow up, unfortunately, and you know, I have a theory, if the vendor did the work, I'm going to pay him. A lot of brokerages won't pay because after 30 days of the closing, the bank's not going to pay me back. So it's to be expected when you do this business, you will lose a large, a large amount of that money over time. You just, you won't see, you will not see it back. You can't, you can't upcharge. So if your bill's 1357, you can only charge the bank 1357. A lot of the large brokerages out there, or even, well, I would say large brokerages, but a lot of the agents don't realize they're probably going to have to get lines of credit to fund a lot of these projects. i give you an example. I had Freddie Mac. They decided to rehab a house here a few months back. Well, that was $33,000 that I had to put up to the contractor. Now, I got paid back. However, I have a line of credit that I had to make a payment on that $33,000. Well, Freddie Mac won't reimburse me for that line of credit payment. That's what I mean by you'll lose money just by just not being organized. So there's a great deal that's expected of you, but then again, they do give you a great deal of reward as well. I call it the bank borrowing from the agent. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. But you know what? If, if you're a professional and this is your career and this is something you want to focus on, you need to understand that that is going to be expected from you, period. You... You cannot sell REO properties and not pay for some of these management fees to manage these properties. So that somebody who's coming in new would have a perspective. If you were going to go in new, what would be a reasonable amount to assume that you'd have to put up on each property? Years ago, I had that broken down. I had it estimated. This was back in, in 2008. We were spending on average about $700 a property at that point. So... We were recouping a large number of that, but um, we did run into obvious issues as time went on with 
banks wanting more. They wanted you to do more, um, spend more on trash outs or more on landscaping. And by the time you do that, it can range quite a bit. So you think that number is higher now? Truthfully, it depends on the client. For a, a quick example, Fannie Mae has got a new program out where they're actually in, in certain areas. They've got a, a vendor manager who's actually paying all of the utility bills. There's really nothing for me to do except actually truly market the property. There's not a lot of capital on, on those properties. But then again, like a Freddie Mac, I have to be expected to rehab a house if they want to rehab a house. You know, it, it just depends on the bank. I try to stay away from the ones that make me pay way too much. I, I can't see justifying spending, you know, $10,000 to rehab a house when I'm only going to get a $500 commission. There's a lot of risk there for $500. Especially if you have to borrow the money and you have an interest payment on that $10,000. Exactly. You'll get reimbursed the $10,000, but you'll lose out on the interest payment which may be as much as the $500 in commission you were going to make. Exactly. So those are things you have to take into consideration. But you have to take the good with the bad. If the bank says to do it, you really have to do it. Because you're going to get some properties where there's absolutely not a single thing in the world to do on it, you know, and you're going to make money. But then there's some that you're, they're going to want to rehab. You just, you just have to do it. You've been talking about the money that people have to put up front where is that money going? Again, you'll be reimbursed later, but what are you putting money up for? Give us a list. Well, that could be everything from when you first initially find the property vacant, you may have to hire the locksmith to rekey the property. Once you find you're into the property, well, there could be debris and trash and, and just, just junk. So you may have to pay to have the property trashed out. And then after the trash out, you're going to have to have maid service done on the house. And then you're going to have ongoing weekly expense from lawn care, and then monthly expense for actually maintaining the gas, water, and electric. So those are primarily your core expenses. Every once in a while, the, the bank will say that they want you to put in extra landscaping or they want you to have a wall repainted. So you may every, every once in a while run into those things as well. Are the majority of your properties sold as is? As you receive them, are you doing fix-up work or rehab on the majority of the properties? The properties with like Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, they really want to promote home ownership. Home ownership to them is the, the, the key. If a property obviously has deficiency issues, and if you did those, you, you took care of those deficiencies, can a homeowner actually go on that property? Yes. If they can't, then that bank's going to want, Fannie and Freddie are going to want you to do that. They're not so much worried about the losses they are getting an actual homeowner in there versus a non-owner occupant. A lot of times with them, what they want is just to make the property really livable for a homeowner. Make it FHA compliant. That's probably the best way to put it. Do you run into properties where there's an occupant in the property and you have to do a cash or keys? All the time. Now, that's another thing that we have to you sometimes will have to upfront that money as well as a cash for keys situation. If you get a, a property with a tenant in there, they do have certain rights and they need to be taken care of. If the lease can't be extended or honored, what will happen is the bank will give them an option, get relocation assistance by taking this cash for keys or be evicted. And we find that most 
people at that point in time really just want money. They don't want to leave with nothing. So we find it very beneficial for the tenant to accept the cash for keys quite often. We do pay those a lot, which is another thing to be expected with with this business. You're going to have to make contact with the tenant to hopefully help them. While we're talking about money, there are certainly agents who are looking at your industry, the REO business, and wondering to themselves, well, first of all, are you being paid a fee or a commission? You are paid a commission. And are those commissions similar to the commissions that people would earn on the retail side? No. No, you, uh, <laughs> you're not that lucky. You're basically paid a lower amount. Uh, you do it for a discounted rate. Is the discounted rate because you're sharing your fee with someone else's in a referral arrangement? Well, that could be a combination of things. Sometimes there's, there's companies out there who outsource properties for, for lenders, and they're compensated off in a referral. And when they take that, well, once I sell the property, liquidate the property for them, then obviously they're, they're paid. And how they, how they work that is some will take, like say there's a 50% commission, some will take 1% right off the top, and I have to split that between my that remaining percent between myself and the buyer agent. Or some will just take, say, a percentage off in my percentage. Really, it's, it's just it depends on the actual client that you're dealing with. Let's talk about your team. You have seven team members. Could you go down a list of the titles of each of these team members and, and what they're doing? Okay. Well, I've got a listing coordinator. She does all of our listings. She handles inputting the property into the MLS system, making sure that the photos are uploaded as well as the um, price reductions. I've got a property manager and his job is to basically make sure that the property is maintained the way that the bank wants it maintained. So we'll do weekly inspections on the property. His job is to make sure that we have that the properties got proper signage, that the utilities are still functioning, that the lawn isn't overgrown. And how he does that is he has two drivers that work underneath him and their job is to drive to every property basically. And, and do a lot of that investigating work for him. If they report an issue at property, how the system works is one of the drivers will get to, or well, we call him a, a runner. One of the runners gets to a property, and they find that a sign is missing. Then that property manager will run right out and put up a sign. Or if it can wait till tomorrow, one of the runners will go back out to the property. Or if they say someone broke into the property, then the property manager will contact either the seller's preservation company or hire a local contractor to go out and secure the property. And then I have a, we have an accountant basically or a bookkeeper and her main function is to pay all of our invoices and make sure that the invoices are submitted and uh, we receive our money. We have what we call a transaction coordinator. So once the property is actually sold and under contract at that point in time, she takes the contract from from execution to close. And then if there's any issues that arise during that contract, then it, that's where I come in. I handle the problems. I solve all of the problems and make sure that things are being processed in a way that needs to be taken care of. And then we, we actually have a, a marketing specialist slash floater. And, and her job is to market the properties in a way that successfully sell them, of course. 
and then as well when she doesn't have work to do her job is to come in and fill a void or help out any of the other parties involved so it can she would do anything from taking a check to a water company contacting the contractor to get his, his invoice help contact the client to let them know what's going on give them updates so she could do a variety of different things now you have this team you also have a brokerage that's connected are all the members that you just mentioned just on your team? Correct. That's just, just my team. Since I mentioned it, you have a brokerage that you also run, and you have agents over there. How many agents are in the brokerage? Uh, we currently have 40. And then you also have a small staff to help with them, a couple people? Yes. Yep. We have three people to uh, help manage them. I'm going to get a question that people are going to ask, and I just want to address it real quick. That 400 that you sold last year, is that your personal production, or is that the 40 agents running around on the other side? That is just my production. My, uh, my brokerage of 40 will close about 900 transactions total this year. I've got a very good group of agents who just are very good go-getters. And uh, my wife, who is my partner, is, uh, she runs the brokerage side of things. So... Uh, she's got her hands full managing 40, 40 people, without a doubt. Your wife is running the brokerage side while you're running the REO side? Correct. Back to your team. Is everybody on your team licensed? I have three people out of my team licensed. In Michigan, anytime they touch a contract or negotiate, I, I give you an example. A lot of the clients, you enter in offers on their, their platform. So like, I'll use an example, Equator. I personally feel if they're entering, they're doing the basic data entry on that, they're technically negotiating on the seller's behalf. So the three people that have that ability, I have them both. I have all of them licensed. I'm assuming that's your transaction coordinator, your listing coordinator, and who's the third? My property manager. Your property manager. And the reason we do that, um, the reason we have him actually licensed is once in a while, You'll go to the house, and the house might have a uh, tenant who wants to purchase the property. Yeah, you know, I just I feel awkward if if numbers are discussed and stuff like that. I want him to be educated enough to know how to properly answer questions if he's asked questions, and I don't want him to say anything that's unethical or or against the code of ethics or violate any state rules. So that's why we've made sure he was licensed. How are you finding these people that you're hiring? Are they all real estate agents, or are you finding them other sources? The majority of the people who work for me were all referral. We started with myself and one assistant, and then it just it grew from there. And then she referred me somebody, and then they referred me somebody. And then they've all got, they got themselves licensed as they went along and as the company grew. And I basically find them word of mouth, and if we can't find them word of mouth, it's just simply uh, what will happen is, is my wife will run a post on her Facebook if that doesn't work, then we'll run a post on LinkedIn. And if that doesn't work, then we go to the Craigslist. Craigslist is a great place to sell houses or, or get leads from. But, man, you put an ad out there in Michigan right now, you'll get you'll have to shut it down in 10 minutes because you have so many people responding. Yeah, it's interesting. So you built your staff the same way you like to build your relationships with banks, by word of mouth. Correct. And networking. Correct. You know, Michael, you've got, all these properties out there, you've got these expenses you've chatted about and carrying costs, people running around. Agents are going to look at this and wonder, are you profitable? Yeah, I'm profitable. 
you know, it depends on on the year. I think my lowest year of profitability was twenty uh, was twenty one percent, and then my biggest year of profitability was was forty. Michael, it sounds like you've got a pretty good handle on the REO business, but I'm sure along the way you've made some mistakes. What's the biggest mistake you made in the REO business so someone else can avoid that? Well, the biggest mistake I had ever made, um, I had actually hired a contractor to winterize a property, and he told me that the job was done. In REO, when a contractor does work on a property, you're supposed to provide before and after photos in order to get reimbursed. Well, I believe that the contractor actually went over and did the work. Well, he actually didn't. He just told me what I wanted to hear to make me feel okay, I guess. I went over to the property, and the pipes had burst, and, I mean, the ceilings caved in, and it was literally raining inside of the home. And I I learned, because I went a week later, I ended up getting fired from that bank, obviously. And what I learned at that point was is that you need to be on top of every single thing. And that's when I hired my first assistant because at that point I was so stretched thin that I needed more help. And and I was very lucky to find the first assistant who's still been with me for this day. She's on her eighth year here. But um, that that's that's really the, the first mistake I made, and that, that was a big one. You got to follow up and you have to do your inspections on these properties. They they change every day. I mean, we've inspected one. I kid you not, you inspect, we inspected it today, for an example, and it burns down tomorrow. You know, if you don't go out and check that, how does your bank know to file an insurance claim? And when you tell them a month later, oh, yeah, that house burned down a month ago, well, that doesn't look favorably on, on your part, and they're going to fire you for not following up on their property. You must treat every REO property as if you're dealing with a residential client. If you think you can set it and forget it type of mentality with REO properties, it doesn't work that way. You must follow through. You must represent and market that property as if that home was, you know, had John and Mary Smith living in it. And if you, if you don't do that, you're setting yourself up to fail. Do you think it's too late for a new agent to get into the REO game? If I had to do it all over again, REO would not be where I'd focus. Short sales is where I would focus right now. And the reason I say that is banks know for a fact that they make more money when they short sell a property. And you're going to see a trend or a shift in the market where a lot of these, these individual banks focus more on short sales than they do REO. So I would primarily focus on short sales if it were me and I was starting all over again. Can they succeed a new person off the street? Yes, they can. It's going to be extremely difficult. And the reason for that is is there's been such a surplus of inventory. And, and what's happened is it's forced these banks to take on so many different agents. And uh, there's, just, there's a lot of competition for this. There are people who want to get in this business every single day that aren't going to get into a bank or are not going to get a new client because there's just people who have been in it for a lot of years. So it is very tough. I think long term, you'd have more success if you can you can get in. It is, it's a long term thing. Though. You, you'll get immediate success from a short sale, at least in my market, versus an REO property. But it's worked for me for 15 years and I never discourage anybody from trying to apply. 
I always help people when they ask me. That way, you know, we can network for one. Because if I can't help them get an REO, they might know someone who needs to sell a house in Grand Rapids, Michigan in the future, and they'll refer me. So, but definitely try. But it's it's just be realistic. It is going to be very difficult to get in if you've got no experience. Michael, what drives you? Why have you been so successful? Honestly, I I think what drives me most is I have a passion for this job. Don't get me wrong. There are days where I, I absolutely can't stand it. But I love coming into work. I love to, to be successful when it comes to meeting new clients or making new inroads with new clientele. That's a big adrenaline rush for me. So that, that kind of drives me as well. I've got a lot of good relationships over the years with, with other realtors. I enjoy talking to them on a daily basis. I also enjoy talking to my clients on a daily basis as well. So, so that drives me. And then, quite honestly, I, well, I have four kids and seven assistants, so I have to make sure they're all fed. That's another driving factor. How do you keep control of your time? Years ago, I was very lucky. I, I took some extra training. I did a lot of, uh, when I was doing residential, Mike Ferry training. I did the Floyd Wickman training. Every real estate guru out there who had a program, I was trying to buy it. And they were very firm believers, and you have to be the master of your time. And I learned that if I systematized everything, I would be able to actually master my time. And for example, when I was telling you my listing coordinator or my transaction coordinator, people in my market know if I have a house under contract, I'm not going to talk to Mike because Laura is going to handle that process or Nancy's going to list that property. They know more about it. So they, they go right to that source. When they contact us, the first thing that they're asked is, how can I help you? Oh, I'm calling about this property. Okay, then it's delegated immediately to the proper person. So I've empowered my staff. They know how to do their job. They actually know how to do their job better than I do. That frees me up to do what I do, which is create new relationships or put out the fires or solve the problems when, they're, when I'm needed. And we've got a, a strict, strict policy on that. If uh, you need help, it's, you're not going to get that answer from me if it's regarding property management. You have to go to our property manager. The agents find that in our area it works out better that way because they're actually getting the answer versus me saying, I don't know that answer, let me find out, and then I'll call you back. Delegate, delegate, delegate. How many hours do you think you're working in a typical week? Forty. I typically work 8 to 5, Monday through Thursday, and then I leave at 3 on Friday. And I don't work weekends. And I don't work after 5. Now, I'm accessible after 5 if, if need be. But I, I typically don't work after 5, and I haven't in years. I don't work Saturdays or Sundays. If you were advising a brand new agent just getting into business, what would you tell them to do first? The first thing I would tell them to do is realize you are Agent Inc. You're the president, the CEO, the CFO, and the sales manager. Your success depends on you. At the end of the day, you are a salesperson. Your job is to sell. Treat this like a career and not a hobby. You'll be successful. That's what I would tell them. Now, how would I tell them to get business if that's what you're referring to? First thing I would do is tell them to market themselves to their sphere of influence make appointments with everybody they know, whether it's a lunch appointment, 
just a, a quick drop by to say hi at their office or their home, but everybody that knows them needs to know that they're a realtor. I would follow around the most successful person as much as I possibly could where I'm not intruding on their time and absorb as much information from them or their broker as possible to learn how to be successful. When we recruit a new agent who's not been in real estate before but may have been in sales, we've got a couple agents who who train them. So they actually basically shadow these people for their first five transactions. And the person who they're normally shadowed with is a very successful agent. And in return, that agent is compensated. When we get our share of the commission as the brokerage, that agent actually gets that share. So for the first five deals of a new agent, we really don't make any money. But they're getting, that agent's getting hands-on training and they're actually figuring out how to make prospects turn into leads and leads turn into sales. Too many times you find that realtors are just creatures of habit and they're very lazy and they don't know how to actually get business. So we actually teach them how to get business and how to get with the CPA to make sure that their taxes are done accordingly, how to take money out of their checks so they don't have IRS issues and how to save money for a marketing budget and when they should hire an assistant. They're, they're groomed for that. Well, Michael, you share a wealth of information. You are a student of your profession. You thrive in an ever-changing environment. You quickly adapt your systems to new opportunities, and yet you stay true to your niche. You have a successful business model that has withstood the test of time. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.